Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I was scared, but I wasn't telling anybody because I was afraid people would come knock on my door and take me to, like here in Colorado, we have like, you know, Cedar Springs, like the psych ward and lock you up. So I was hiding and dying internally. But again, externally, I still had a good job. You know, I, I looked good, had girlfriends, and pretended to have money. My guest today is named Rob Lohman. He is an interventionist, a recovery coach, a recovery advocate, and a podcaster. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, everybody. It's My name is Rob Lohman. I'm a man in long-term recovery. I love Jesus and... I have been through the roller coaster of recovery and addiction and recovery and addiction. It's just this kind of like up and down cycle that just seems to happen in life. But I can tell you now, I love being sober. I love helping other people find the road to recovery and I have a 14 and an 11 year old kiddo. And so I started using alcohol at 14. So I'm kind of like, it's on like my bubble radar right now, just having kids and, uh, been married for 15 years and just love living in Colorado and just real involved in the, in the recovery and the faith community and just loving seeing people change their lives. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today and, and dive in a little bit deeper. I've been, I've been creeping on your LinkedIn a little bit. So I have a, a little, I have a rough idea of, of kind of what you do and, and what you're all about. So, uh, excited to talk to you about that, but if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could kind of take us back to addiction and what that was like and, and what the road was that led you to eventually getting sober. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's, and it's, it's crazy because you think about getting the road to becoming sober, right. But it's even the, the, the spaghetti mess of highways in the road of recovery, you know, it was almost like getting sober was easier than, than recovery sometimes. But yeah, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, some Midwest boy through and through and um, just had a great, family, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everyone lived like near each other. So we had a good kind of family oriented life and always did just did stuff together all the time, went to the lakes in Michigan all the time together. And, and then my dad ended up getting a new job down in Texas. So go Texas, right. And that's where you are. So yep. that was my, that was my introduction to Fort Worth, Texas. And, and it was a culture shock going from the Midwest where I knew my, my whole family was there the Fort Worth, Texas, where I didn't know anybody. And, and that's, I think when some of my insecurities and things really started creeping in and alcohol just kind of started becoming part of my life at age 14. And it wasn't like there was anything weird that happened in my life. It was just the allure of drinking and social parties was attracted to me, you know, in our Christian community too. It was just, you know, it was just people just had 
wine at, at Christmas. And, you know, people drank a lot, um, and not, not my Christian circles, <laughs> um, up at our lake, like in Michigan, and it was just what people did. So there was always this allure. And then once I tasted it at a Christian youth party, he was really kind of funny. A guy brought a six pack of beer to the party back in Fort Worth, Texas. And he said, Hey, Loman, you want to come grab a beer? And I was like, yeah, two girls, six pack of beer. Sure. Why not? So we went, you know, through the little bushes and just, I just slammed three beers and it was kind of like alcohol just had me at hello for the next 15 years of my life. Wow. And that's, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about having, having been introduced to alcohol at a, at a Christian youth event. And that's, uh, that's definitely a new one for me, but you know, I can kind of relate to that as well. Cause I, I grew up in, in a church scene and, you know, spent a lot of time in different church programs and stuff. And, you know, my first introduction to, to drugs and alcohol was, was through people that were also in those same circles. So I, I, I definitely get it. Like, I think sometimes when we hear that, um, you know, we hear like a church or we hear Christian or whatever, we assume that they aren't going to be involved in those same kind of things. They're not going to be involved in drugs or alcohol, but you know, everybody is human and, and we all have our own struggles and vices. Yeah. And I think, and I, I, I never really thought about kind of like why, I mean, I always share that part of the story. It's not just like, Oh, I found alcohol at 14 and went along, but it's, it's just kind of, you never know what your environments are going to be. Right. I mean, my kids go to a, a Christian school here in Colorado and you know, you can't just think like, Oh, things are going to be just fine. Cause you go to a Christian school. It's like, no, just, just the, just the, you, you just gotta always just kind of be watching out for your kids and not helicoptering them, but just there's influences elsewhere and we can't turn our blind eye and be like, Oh, they're going to be totally fine and stuff. And so, for me, it was just, it was that night. And that night I lied about kind of why my eyes were all bloodshot and told my mom it was because of my contacts. And that started like, oh, I just lied and got away with it. And that started kind of like a manipulation and just kind of um, lack of telling the truth for, for the next 15 years of my life. And, you know, and I went to college and to become a doctor and just, I had like all this ambition, but alcohol just kind of seemed to always win when ambition was in the room at the same time. So it's kind of like in that art of learning how to like the art of manipulation. Like I feel like I became a chameleon because I had to act differently around different circles of people. You know, I had my athletic friends, had my, you know, really smart friends and kind of like my Bible friends. Um, I wasn't really involved in the, in the Bible friend world too much, but, but I, I would just say, you know, from 14 to, to 29, it was just, it was a very dark um, challenging place to learn how to uh, be accepted by other people, which was one of the things you we were really craving. And I also developed like a gambling addiction. And so it was just kind of, you know, going trips to Vegas just because you could go, but really it was Visa and MasterCard that were paying for the trip. And it was just, I, I just had a hard time just being honest about a lot of things that I did because I couldn't even be honest about the, the industry I was in. I, people say, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a stockbroker. I was a commercial real estate guy. You know, it was just, I didn't know. I just was always trying to impress people because I hated who I was becoming inside. Mm -hmm. And so by buying drinks for people or paying for grounds of golf and just, it just was kind of like my cover up that I could hide internally, but look good externally. Yeah. Yeah. And I can totally relate to what you shared there at the beginning about being like that chameleon and, and being a different person in, in, in different social circles. And yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. And I think that's, 
I think that's part of our addiction. And I think that, and it might even be like part of our survival mechanism when we're, when we're in our addiction is just trying to fit in with wherever we're at and, and being able to get what we need and, and, you know, just kind of blend in with our environment. Yeah. And you just get lost along the way. Right. And then over time, it's just exhausting. I mean, it's more exhausting to live that way. And it's just like, Hey, my name's Rob. I, I'm a commercial real estate guy. I like to drink a lot and just being honest instead of trying to cover a lot of those things up. But over time, I really started wanting more for my life. You know, the kind of that, the depths of depravity had gotten too deep and I started dealing a lot with suicide ideation. And so I'm living back, actually back in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now I graduated college, went back out my MBA, um, got married in my addiction and it was a short lived alcoholic marriage. We got divorced and I lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana in commercial real estate, worked in a, a six state region. So I could drive around a lot and, and I would drive to casinos and act like I was working and then just kind of create this environment like, oh, Rob is being productive. But in the midst of this, I really had started craving wanting more. I was scared of dying because I would, you know, suicide ideation, I would see myself die often in certain instances. And, and they say you normally don't see yourself die. Usually you kind of wake up or come back to reality when before you actually see your body dead. And I was scared, but I wasn't telling anybody because I was afraid people would come knock on my door and take me to like here in Colorado, we have like, you know, Cedar Springs, like the psych ward and lock you up. So I was hiding and dying mm. internally, but again, externally, I still had a good job. You know, I, I looked good, had girlfriends and pretended to have money. And this one particular evening, I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And all of a sudden the bar got completely dead silent. Like you couldn't hear the band or any voices or anything. And I, and I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the music got really loud again. And I looked around and I was the only person I happened to. And I looked at my buddy, Sean, and I said, man, I think I'm finally done drinking. And he laughs at me whatever, dude, I'll see you tomorrow at the bar. Cause I drank and drove eight nights a week and went out every single night. But this night was different. I felt different inside. Like I felt sober, but I was still highly intoxicated. And I drove home that night and ended up walking up my 12 flights of stairs to my little one, you know, one, one bedroom loft apartment. And next thing I knew I'd put about 350 pounds on my barbell and I was laying down on my workout bench, picked up that barbell and just dropped it across my chest to take myself out. And that was going to be the end of my alcoholic demise, you know, Oh, whoa, you know, some Rob got drunk and tried to work out and he's dead. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot of thought that went into this. It was just autopilot. And as I unhinged my elbows, what I believe happened was God just stopped time for a second. Um, Cause you know, God can carry the weight of the world and he could lift that weight that I couldn't lift. Right. And it's just suspending above my body. And the next thing I knew my dog was nudging my knee with his head and just kind of doing that puppy dog tilt. It's like, dad, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh my gosh, who's going to feed you tomorrow morning. And my heart breaks for my dog and my parents and my brother. And I just started thinking the good stuff. And this is, you know, lightning speed of, of uh, thoughts. Right. And then all of a sudden God just put the barbell back on that rack. And uh, I felt like a completely different man in that moment. I felt God's love. I felt his peace, all the stuff I've been craving my whole life. Like I felt it that night. And that was the first night I'd slept in peace in a very, very, very long time. 
and uh, woke up that next morning and I accidentally called my parents. I meant to call my aunt Carol, who has now passed away. She had 25 years of sobriety at the time, but I called my parents and that was the answer prayer that my parents have been praying for years. So parents don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop praying for your loved one that's struggling from addiction. Just pray that God would intervene and God intervened that night. And, um, man, that was the, that was the answer prayer, man. And then my aunt took, came, picked me, picked me up and took me to my first meeting of willingness in recovery. And I haven't had a craving. I didn't go through detox. It was just like, I never drank a drop alcohol my entire life. Wow. Wow. That is an incredible story, man. That's wow. I, I've never heard anything quite like that. That's, that's, that's insane, man. And, and just like, like you said, how, how God intervened in your life and just like that, that's absolutely incredible, man. And I'd be curious, is that part of the reason that you got into doing interventions yourself is because you had this experience or what led you to the line of work that you're in now? Yeah. Well, like I said, getting sober was the easy part. Recovery was the hard part. But but the fascinating thing is that, I mean, I could drink up to two bottles of scotch in a day towards the end of my drinking of just sales and marketing, right? And the fact that I, as I share the next part of my story, haven't had the desire or craving to drink alcohol through all this is like mind-blowing. So, I mean, literally, I haven't had a craving since I got sober and it was just gone. And so, but I jumped into recovery. I jumped in the rooms of recovery. I I you know, got a sponsor. I did all the stuff they suggested I do. And, and being a Christian, I, I looked into Celebrate Recovery back then. And I just, it just didn't jive for me at the time. I just needed a good old true, true alcoholic. I couldn't relate to the person that felt that they felt horrible because they just eaten a whole bag of Oreos or smoked another cigarette or other, other sin patterns in people's lives that were holding them back. Um, my thing was AA. That was it. And so I literally was like Mr. AA forever. And then in, in 2000, and I, and, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in my life in between here, but I'm going to get to answer to your question because recovery tells you, told me I could do anything as long as my spiritual conditioning was pure. Right. So when I was seeking God and seeking my sponsor and seeking wisdom, like things were clicking in my life. Yeah. Right? And then I, and then I ended up getting married in 2006 and, um, and so keep in mind when I was, when I found recovery, I was single. There's a lot of freedom in being single. Right. And then, yeah. And as we were talking earlier about the beginning of the show about, you know, like, you know, you know, our kids and nurseries and diapers and life and chaos and stuff. And it, it can derail you sometimes. And so, um, so I ended up getting married in 2006. My son was born in 2007 and, um, I'm still on this journey of like, God, what do you want me to do with my life type thing? Meanwhile, I'm working on a huge three-day Christian music festival in Colorado, and and my wife happened to work for this huge radio station, and so things start clicking there. And then um, 2008, 2009 comes along. I end up starting an insurance agency. My daughter's born in 2010. So here's all these new things, right, in a short period of time. Marriage, two kids, and a, and a career. And I was very emotionally immature because they say when you start drinking and using drugs and alcohol, and things to cope with your front or frontal lobe as guys, it just stops connecting <laughs> and our frontal lobes don't stop developing till we're 26. So I was a very immature 29 year old when I got sober. And so as life went on, I just, as life pressures continued, I stopped doing recovery. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped because they were just inconvenient. Like I had to get in their deal done. So this faith driven 
abundance mentality I used to have became a fear-driven scarcity abundance or scarcity mentality. I got to get these things done to pay for our bills and pay for the office space. And so I just quit doing recovery. I quit going to Bible studies and plugging into men's groups and just started isolating again. And I ended up having a major nervous breakdown in 2012. And there's a lot of details in here I'm leaving out. But in 2012, I had a major mental nervous breakdown in recovery. So for people in recovery, we're talking about, you know, not just using drugs or alcohol or gambling and stuff. It's so much more than that. It's, it's understanding our past and how did we get here? It's understanding the trauma that we went through in our life that maybe led us to drink. It's, it's just uh, getting gaining an understanding so we can move forward more as a more whole person. You know, and I didn't do any of that in the early recovery at all. I didn't look into my past and didn't, didn't gain that. So, um, so I'll pause there for a few any questions, but it's, it's more like this big mental breakdown that is going to lead me into the industry that I'm in now. Gotcha. Yeah. I was just going to comment. I, I love, I love the, the, the thing you said earlier about, you know, getting sober is easy, but recovery is the hard part. And, you know, I can attest to that. And I've, I've, I've walked in a similar path where I've, where I've slacked off on my meetings and haven't really, haven't really been in contact with my sponsor and just kind of, you know, gone through the motions and haven't really been actively involved in my recovery. And I can definitely attest to, you know, just the difference in the quality of my life for when I'm putting in the work and doing the things that I know that I need to be doing for my recovery versus when I'm just kind of coasting and relaxing and, you know, falling into that complacency. So I was just going to comment on that briefly. Yeah. Well, complacency is a complacency and boredom are like two things that are not great for anyone's life. I don't care what you're doing. It's just, you're just sliding backwards and just, then you're going to find things to bring excitement into your life. And at this time of my life, I'm telling you about, I had a pretty bad gambling addiction as well. That started when I was 15. I just never knew I needed to deal with it. So that revolves, involves like, you know, your dopamine receptors in your brain and your pleasure center. And it was all out of whack from, from gambling and self-loathing and depression and anxiety. And just, I was a complete uh, internal mess going on. And, but this particular night, what ended up happening was I was up late in the evening and just sitting on my couch, you know, I was, I had lost my career just due to sales and production numbers. So here I am now listening to all the lies of my enemy of, you know, you're a loser, you suck, you failed as a father, you just, you failed, man. And in this night, you know, like as men, we can compartmentalize our life pretty well, kind of like a waffle brain, yeah. you know, we're going to put, well, we'll put marriage over here. We're going to put our job over here. We're going to put friends and church and it's like this whole like city walls of a waffle. And it's just, we're just compartmentalizing it. Well, this night I, I just, I, I reference that because it's like the waffle turned into a pancake and everything just bled together. And just and just molded together and and I just had a moment, like I said, a momentary lack of reasoning, and I ended up setting some uh, boxes on fire on our covered patio in a mental blackout, and I couldn't stop it. And that moment right there, that lack of clarity, like literally changed the trajectory trajectory of my family's life in in positive and negative ways. I guess you could say when I can look back on it now, and I what ended up resulting from that again. Oh, I won't get into all the details of it, but it ended up in the July of the next year of me getting sentenced to 13 years in the system here in Colorado and never been in the system before ever. Didn't know anyone that had been incarcerated ever. 
And here I am just like, we're trying to figure out how to navigate this. Like, am I gone for 13 years? God, like, is that it? Like my wife's not going to stay with me and just all the things that go through your head. But it was just like, I just had the comfort of comfort and peace of the Lord, knowing everything was going to work out. Everything was going to be fine. And so thank goodness I was only gone for 10 and a half months and there, and then 11 months in a halfway house. But during that time of reflection, because I had all the time in the world, I was able to to study and read and understand like, why do I care about this faith that I've grown up with? Does it really mean anything to me? What do I want to do for the rest of my life? How am I going to turn this into the big opportunity in my life to go help people? And my wife had to figure out what she was going to do, like stay with me and go through. And she had to go through her own faith journey and agreed to stay with me. And we've worked through a majority of our issues around that. And um, my kids, like I said, are, they were three and five at that time. Now they're 14 and 11. So they've been, they've kind of grown up with me helping people in my life. And so when I got out, the reason I got into doing interventions and coaching was because uh, the felonies on my record, they put up a lot of obstacles for people. Employers won't even take a look at you if you have a big F on your report card, if you will. And so I was like, after so many, so many, so many job interviews, I was like, forget it. I'm just going to do my own thing. And so a friend of mine said, hey, you're so good with people. You know good recovery. You know bad recovery. <laughs> You've been in the system. Why don't you get trained to do interventions and become a coach? And so it made sense. And so in 2015, I, end of 2015, I got trained to do interventions and coaching. And ever since then, I've continued to go through different trainings and come up with my own and just continue to increase my knowledge of how to help people from psychology to taking all the, you know, CEU courses and being so involved in the recovery community and faith community and psychologists and therapists and counselors is my whole network of people now. And so now I literally spend my time helping families move into the process of how do we help our loved one not die from addiction and how do we help our family system change and not die because of the addiction. I'd be curious to know, and we, we kind of briefly touched on it before we started recording, but I'm not overly familiar with the whole intervention process. You know, my only, my only basis for, for knowledge of intervention is the TV show intervention. So I'd love to hear more about what it is you actually do, how it differs from, from, you know, the television version, you know, cause like in the beginning, before I started recovery, like my only reference to recovery or to 12 step meetings was movies and TV shows. And, you know, I found that it's not really anything like it is on, on TV. So I'd be curious to know like what some of the differences are and, and what it is that you actually do. Yeah. Yeah. Like that old show 28 days with Sandra Bullock and stuff. And, and you're exactly right. I didn't even know treatment centers existed. Like I didn't even know that was an option to look into when I was trying to like get sober at all. And so now, when you look at the vast landscape today, you know, there's detoxes everywhere, you know, medical detoxes, social detoxes, residential treatment centers out the wazoo around the country, inpatient, outpatient, sober living houses. There's so many, there, there's, a, there's a pretty broad spectrum of how to help people these days. And, you know, tel telehealth, telehealth therapy that people can do from rural areas they didn't have access to before. So it's not just about meetings like, was for me back 20 years ago um, or 21 years ago. And so for me, you know, when, when I think of the intervention process, so many people think like, oh, well, we're just, when they hit their bottom, we're going to go help them. Well, my philosophy is why wait till they hit bottom? Let's bring the bottom up to your loved one. 
That's my philosophy and interventions is we're going to bring the bottom up to your loved one that's struggling with addiction and the family system that's struggling on how to manage the addiction and present options. And then on this day, the intervention day, people get to choose what direction they want to go. They can get off the elevator if they want to and get help, or they can get right back on the elevator and continue to crash. And then now I get to help the family with boundaries and how to have healthy boundaries to be there for the loved one when they decide they're ready to get the help. And so that's kind of one thing I bring up to families in the beginning is we're going to come up with a plan to bring the bottom up to your loved one and have a whole conversation around that. And a lot of times families call and they, and they, they, they feel like they're in a major crisis and we got to do something tomorrow. My job is to slow the roll down a little bit, see what's been going on, who's involved, you know, what's the history really look like and try and then come up with a plan to help the, the loved one and the family move forward in recovery. That's the simplest way to explain kind of the intervention process, but, but ultimately, I mean, it involves the, the person that's calling the loved one that says, Hey, something's going, something's wrong. What are we going to do? And, and interventions aren't always like, like I said, like the TV show of just get, let's get everyone together. We're going to sit in a room and cry and read our letters and beg them to go get help and give them alternatives where if you don't go get help today, we're going to kick you out of the house. You're a horrible person. You've ruined our lives. No, that's, I take this from a complete loving perspective. And, and I've, I've helped people, you know, get in treatment, the family, like a, a, a spouse will call and just say, I cannot get so-and-so like they're dying from the alcoholism and stuff. And, I, and they have this whole plan and I'll say, well, have you ever asked your loved one if they want help? And a lot of times it's no, like, no, we just know they need help. I've told them they need to get help. And I said, well, but if you ask them if they want to get out of the rat race, or are you just telling them they better get out of the rat race? And so, I mean, I've, I've met people at Panera Bread and talked them into going to treatment and just, and just you know, not talk them into going to treatment, but help them see they need, it's their opportunity to invest in themselves to get healthy for themselves, not for their kids or their wife or their boss, for themselves to go get help. And, and then sometimes, you know, those coffee times turn into, I'm not, I don't need any help, blah, blah, blah. And then we turn into the whole, orchestrated thing of family breakfast. We come in and surprise Billy and, you know, and he's like, Oh crap. I was like, dude, we could have done this over coffee, <laughs> but you didn't want to talk to your coffee. You didn't want to meet me. So here we are today. But the whole thing is that it's to come up with a plan to help the family set healthy boundaries, the family to get their own support and their own help and the loved one to get their own help, their support that they can move forward, talking the same kind of language Instead of loved one goes, gets help, family says, we don't have, it's not our problem. It's just their problem. And it just doesn't work out that well when the family system doesn't get the, all the help that they all could have. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the point you're making about bringing the help to the family. And, and I think that that's really important. And I know that when I first got into recovery, like my parents were trying to find different resources and I think my mom went to a couple Al-Anon meetings and she bought a bunch of books and like, she didn't really know where to go with all that. But I think that's really important that you bring in the family aspect because, you know, we, we put our loved ones through all kinds of hell, you know, through our addiction and through our use. And, you know, a lot of times, like you said, the primary focus is on getting this person into rehab or getting this person clean and sober and, and we forget about the family member. So I think that's a great point that you're bringing up that we need to, 
we need to to address everybody that's involved you know and and i think a lot of family members also i I don't know for sure i can only speak from you know conversations that i've had with with my loved ones but i think some of them also feel like they're partially responsible or you know did i enable them or they have all these questions and all these thoughts like somehow like like I, I I hate to to like put my mom on blast because I know she listens to the podcast. Thanks, mom. Um, but you know, like in the beginning, she kind of felt like, what did what did I do? Like, what did I? How did I fail as a parent? What did I? Where did I go wrong that you turned to drugs? And it was like it had absolutely nothing to do with you. Like I had like the picture perfect childhood. Like grew up in the middle class American family and. You know, I just didn't like me. I didn't, I, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin and, and drugs made me, you know, temporarily drugs made me feel good about myself. They made me have that self-confidence and like, feel like I could talk to other people. So I love that you're talking about the whole family aspect of, of recovery. Yeah. Well, your mom and I are like, they, they, my mom felt the same way. And it was kind of those things of just trying to let them off the hook. Cause what happens is shame starts creeping in for the family a lot. Right. And then they get stuck in the shame cycle. What did I do wrong? What was my, and, and like you said, sometimes we're just wired differently in, in alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex or shopping or gaming or whatever it is just fills that thing. Yeah. And it's not like there's something major that happens. So you're exactly right. And so one thing I want to throw out there too, I, I feel like in the recovery world, there's too much shaming of people. And it's just like, well, well, you just didn't pray hard enough. You need to pray harder for your son. So sometimes that people say like in the faith community, it's like, well, okay, well, Lord, I pray. So, and it's like, no, it's not, it's not a moral dilemma for people with addictions. It's just, there's a chemical thing that's going on and a moral thing and an ethical thing and a internal conflict. So I just want to caution people to like, you know, stop shaming people. I don't like the word enabling at all. I feel like families are doing the best they can with the tools that they have. Right. And, and if, if in their mind, they knew like, I'm killing my kid because I'm doing this. And if that, if that registered and clicked, it's like, oh, wow, I need to figure out something different to do then. But let's stop shaming people and saying, you you enabled him. Like, you 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 bought him out. You bought him groceries, and therefore, he could go buy alcohol with that money. That's true. But the way you deliver that information to somebody, they're doing the best they can to keep their loved one alive. So we just got to get new tools in front of people and help them. And that's why I'm a big fan of what I do with my coaching and intervention work is coaching, counseling, and community. Those three things have got to work together to help for long-term recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear, you know, we're kind of getting towards the end, but I'd love for you to, to share a little bit more about the services you offer. If, if listeners are, are interested in finding out more about that, where can they connect with you? Do you have a website? Are you on social media? You know, kind of lay out the programs that you offer and, and how we can find those. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm all over the place, but I think the easiest thing I tell people to do, and, and I mean this sincerely, people don't think like, well, he's giving me my phone number. Um, I'm not gonna, just going to call the guy. Okay, yeah, that's why I give the number out. So if there's something going on, you're like, I just don't know how to move. I don't know how to move further in my recovery. I'm, I feel like I'm just stuck. I'm not drinking. I'm not using but I just feel like I'm just stuck. Well, that's where coaching comes into place, right? Recovery coaching. If you're got a loved one that's living in the basement and they're dying and you don't know what to do and you're just scared, just call me and let's start a conversation. And then we see where we kind of go from there. But whether people need intervention help or recovery coaching, 
or just want to know more about the recovery advocacy work I do here in Colorado, they can just call me up at 970-331-4469. And then you can always just go to liftedfromtherut.com. That's my website, has my podcast show on there as well. And everything I do is just on liftedfromtherut.com. You can get tons of information there, but just call me. That's it, or text me and say, Hey Rob, I heard you on the show. Just, I just want to talk for a few minutes. You got some time. I may or may not. I might just shoot you my online calendar link and say, set up a time to chat, but I'm open and available to the ability that I'm open and available. But I know people all over the country that can help people. So whether you're living in, you know, Florida or New York or Michigan or Texas or California or wherever, um, if I don't know somebody, I can help find somebody to help you. Awesome. Well, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing part of your journey with us and kind of breaking down what interventions actually look like as opposed to like this fantasy idea that we have from, from movies and TV, man. I really do appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, you're a rock star. Keep up the great work. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. If you're interested in learning more about services that Rob provides, the links will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.